1: Hello, this is James Stansel. Welcome to the New Books Network, the African-American studies channel. I'm your host. And today we have the pleasure of talking to White Robes, Silver Screens, Movies and the Making of the Ku Klux Klan. The author is Tom Rice, and the book is published by Indiana University Press. Tom comes to us from the University of St. Andrews in the UK. I had a great conversation with him. He's a fun guy, very nice guy. He, He talks with you a little bit about... Why he was interested in this topic, the research um, that took place, as well as, you know, the importance of uh, Ku Klux Klan and hate groups like that and social media. Social media of that time was movies and films and such. Today, you know, you have an alt-right move in the United States and they use the Internet um, as, as well as email and other types of media. So we made that comparison. Uh, he talks about some of the prominent films, Birth of a Nation, The Black Legion and such. Um, that relate to the Ku Klux Klan, I really think you'll find this to be a very interesting interview. And the book is White Robes, Silver Screens, Movies and the Making of the Ku Klux Klan, by Dr. Tom Rice of the University of St. Andrews in the U.K. So I'll step out of the way, give it a listen. The New Books Network, African American Studies Channel. Hello, this is James Stansel, and welcome to the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I have the great pleasure today of speaking with someone across the pond, as they say, <laughs> Dr. Tom Rice of the University of St. Andrews. He's a lecturer in film studies, and we're going to be talking with him today on the New Books Network about his book, White Robes, Silver Screens, Movies and the Making of of the Ku Klux Klan. And this book is published by the University, excuse me, Indiana University Press.
0: Hello, Dr. Rice, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, James. Lovely to speak to you today.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we talked a little offline about the fact that I was looking forward, really greatly looking forward to talking with you about this book because for us here in the United States, this is very relevant now. Uh, You know, we have a new president and there's the uh, rebirth of what people call the alt-right Movement, uh, a white nationalist, white separatist movement. And some people are concerned over here about fake news and fake stories and, you know, increases in hate crimes and, and such. So I think a book like yours, White Robes and Silver Screens, Movies and the Making of the Ku Klux Klan, is absolutely relevant uh, for today's world here in the United States and probably internationally as well.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're. I think uh, unfortunately, you're absolutely right. In that when I was when I was researching it and uh, started writing it, I don't think I realised how relevant it would become by the time it it was released uh, this year. Um, and you're absolutely right. There are, although it's a historical study from the the teens really through to the forties, so it's kind of interwar period. I think there are such strong parallels between then and mm-hmm. today. Um, and as you said. We see the Klan and the, the far right. This discourse coming up again. We see um, repetition in the kind of language that was being used right. in the in the '20s and today. Um, we see discussions about the Klan itself, the way that um, uh, there been, you know, there was a Hillary Clinton campaign video which was uh, directly linking Trump to the Klan and these yes. kinds of things. There were there were clear attempts to to use the Klan as well in these discussions. Um, and also, I just think in the way that, as my book argues, the ways in which the clan were using the media in, in the 20s, we see, right. we see parallels between then and now in the kind of the use of media. Mm-hmm. The actual media forms may change, but I think there are um, strong parallels in, in the kind of the devices they're using, the language that's being used. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the, the kind of parallels we can, we can draw out from the book.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, thank you for that so much, Tom. And, uh, you know, before we really get into, you know, the nuts and bolts and stuff about the book, I know my le- listeners love to learn a little bit about the authors themselves, you know, about, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your background um, academically, you know, as well as, you know, what drew you to this topic and, and what types of things did you do to research this book?
0: Sure. Um, well, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. And as you say, I'm, I'm based in the UK, so it's not an obvious <laughs> uh, topic, perhaps, you would think. Um, my own background, really, this was as a as a university student. I was studying um, history, and I was also studying film studies. So those were two, two backgrounds, really, and um, I'm sure, like a lot of people, I took a I took a, a brilliant course on on American race relations. That mm-hmm. was the topic the kind of a year long course in my final year. And um, at the same time, I was I was interested in early cinema. So the oh, two kind of um, merging and, and coming together um, I after I, I finished my undergraduate I had the opportunity to do a, a PhD which was originally looking at the kind of representation of, of the Ku Klux Klan um, on film but it, it changed quite quickly I worked with um, Dr. Lee Griefson, who, uh who is at the University College of London okay. and he really helped shape the work as well as my ideas, so that it became much more about um, the ways in which the clan used cinema and the ways in which it was producing its own films and these kinds of things, rather than simply about the ways it had been represented on, on screen. So I, I, it was a kind of a very long process in some ways, and I, I did this um, PhD a long time ago now, and not too long ago, I did. <laughs> I was going to well, say, it doesn't look that long ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. I, I, need to, I need to defend that. Um, but I, uh, I did that, and then I worked on, a, on another couple of projects afterwards. Okay. And always wanted to, to go back to this study and to really expand on some of the areas that had interested me. And then right. um, that's what I've been doing over the, the last few years, actually okay. pulling it apart, going back through the research, finding new areas to explore, right. making new connections, and I think having that that distance really helped me as well, um, you know, going back to the material again. Um, but in terms of my actual you mentioned there about how I uh, research this as well. And it as you'll probably, you know, as you can see from the the notes and the bibliography, it right. was a lot of there was quite a lot of travel. So it was, you know, I, I spent a fair amount of time in, in the States, in Indiana and Ohio and New York and Washington and, and further afield. And but also I was incredibly fortunate that um, there were lots of very generous libraries and archivists and things who answered my my questions. And also, I guess, in the last few years, we've seen um, an increase in, you know, digitized materials and things like this Ah, as well means that uh, the ways in which we research is changing as well. So um, I was fortunate there. But it was quite a. it's, it's been it's been quite a long process in that way going back to the material again I suppose
1: but you know like you said sometimes it's good to have a bit of distance or you know professional distance and not try to do it all at one time because as you get older and you mature you develop new skills um, you know you can come back and approach that a topic again and and find some new you know ways to look at or some different ways to do it so for those of you out there who are interested in becoming researchers like Dr. Rice or you know, one of your favorite scholars you've heard here on the New Books Network. You know, listen to some of these tips and things that he's sharing. Thank you for sharing that, Doctor Rice.
0: Yeah, and no, I think I think it is a um, it's a it's a good point because you do also uh, sometimes get very attached to right. an idea or a sentence or whatever it is, and I think that's never going. You know that <laughs> that is that that's the center of the book, and then when you look back on it later on with a bit of distance, you think, oh no, that doesn't work. That doesn't, right. you know. And, and it's, it's easier to get rid of it. So, yeah, e- editing is always, always the key part. And, uh, uh, you know, I I tend to write and then spend a lot of time in the editing ah, as well. Right, but, right. But uh,
1: and, uh, and we're here on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and I'm here today with Dr. Tom Rice at the University of St. Andrews in the UK. He is a lecturer in film studies, and we're talking about his book, White Robes, Silver Screens, Movies and the making of the Ku Klux Klan movies and the making of the Ku Klux Klan. And this is a book that's published by Indiana University Press. And it's really interesting, you know, that it's Indiana University Press, considering the connection between the state of Indiana and the Ku Klux Klan.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that was that was a conscious decision. (laughs) I mean, Indiana have been I mean, it's a great press and they've got a really good film history. Sure. uh, Film history collection. So it was, it was a very good fit and they were, and they've been brilliant with the book, but at the same time, there was a kind of local uh, element to it right. as well. Um, as you say, a lot of this history is in the Midwest and um, you know, I, I take examples of films that were produced by clan groups in Indiana. Mm-hmm. I use examples of particular cinemas in Indiana that were owned by clansmen. So I, right. I take specific examples from that area. So, um, yeah, it, it it felt like a, um, I mean, I I'm not sure I sold it to them quite in that way. But I think uh, there is a there is a local um, element to it as well, um, as well as the fact that I mean, it was a, they were you know great great with the book. So yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, this book has a a great cover, and um, I mean, and I, I definitely feel like it's something that's accessible to you know not just scholarly types or the academic, but the average person. You know, a person who's interested in film. I mean, you know, there's lots of great documentation. You heard Dr. Rice mention his notes section. I mean, it's very extensive. He did outstanding research here. And again, the book is White Rose, Silver Screens, Movies, and the Making of the Ku Klux Klan, published by Indiana University Press. And I'm here on the New Books Network, the African American Studies Channel. I'm James Stansel, and I'm here with Dr. Tom Rice at the University of St. Andrews in the, in the UK. So if you hear someone who sounds maybe a little different than what you've been hearing on the New Books Network, (laughs) you you still tune into the right place. Because Dr. Uh, Rice is from the UK, but his book and his topic is about um, film studies and history of the the Ku Klux Klan. And so I guess at this point, Dr. Rice, we should probably get into a little bit about uh, some of what you consider your major points or your major findings in your book, if you could share with us.
0: Yeah. So in in some ways, I guess the starting point for the book um, and the starting point for my own research and interest in this was um, was a history that maybe people, some people will already know and will be Mm -hmm. familiar, which is um, the birth of a nation. So the release of this this film, D.W. Griffith's film,
1: the original
0: birth of a nation, the original birth of a nation, sorry, I need to now clarify and say (laughs) birth of a nation um, in 1915, so 100 years ago. And it was released in when it when it played in Atlanta in uh, early December of 1915. A new Ku Klux Klan group had been founded mm. a couple of weeks before. Um, that new group advertised in the local paper next to a uh, poster for *The Birth of a Nation*. Wow. They reportedly paraded at the opening of the film. So that was the kind of starting point for the book in a way. That was kind of the visual starting point. Mm. This idea. That a film had, um, in some ways, kind of sparked or um, uh, ignited a a new group, this right. this modern clan group, which um, which initially sparked my interest. But then, I really wanted to say, well, well, what happened after this? You know, what's the what's the bigger history here mm-hmm. about the ways which this group goes from really being, you know, in 1919 it has four or five thousand members. And then, by the mid nineteen twenties it has a figure near five million. You know how do we explain wow. that that growth and the ways in which this group becomes kind of embedded in um in society you know in in local communities, the ways in which you have i mean some of the the research you know you, the things you find out about this this group you have this perception today of what we think the and was, and then I was reading these newspapers and finding you know pictures of clansmen attending church services and and attending you know um, school bake sales and clan baseball teams and all these kinds of things and it so I was really trying to understand this growth Mm -hmm. and see the media and film played in this in this expansion so um, on the one hand I guess it's a history of of the clan but it's also a history of film and media but wow. the ways which, um, the ways in which groups use film and media to further their their aims and their politics and um, you know the the what was interesting was that I as I said before I thought this was going to be initially a project about how hollywood has represented the clan mm-hmm. and that's one part of it but actually what i found was a group that was um Protesting against film, you know, establishing itself as a kind of social reformer, as this big uh, player in the kind of debates that were going on in Hollywood about Mm. um, about censorship and all these kinds of things. Mm. Also, as a producer of film, as an exhibitor of film. Mm. Uh, So I became interested in the kind of the wider ways in which it used film and media, the fact that it had, you know, (laughs) Lots of newspapers. Did it radio shows? It put on big public events. It had this kind of this kind of big network of, of media performance that I was that I was interested in. So that um, that's kind of the direction that the the uh, the book took there. I think was mm-hmm. was this wider use of media by um, by this group by the
1: return of you know the the developing clan at that time. Absolutely, right. I mean, you had like a U.S. president that. <laughs> That applauded and you know what did what did he say it was history written in lightning I think or something like that describing yeah, the well, birth of a. He
0: was supposed to say that whether he did or not I don't know but it was a <laughs> good, like, good bit of publicity and it's a good bit of kind of legitimizing the you know the group by by aligning as it did by kind of aligning itself to these kind of uh, you know these these prominent figures right. um, so yeah you're absolutely right and I think um, but but you know. I thought, OK, this is about The Birth of a Nation initially, but actually when you consider that The Birth of a Nation came out in 1915 mm-hmm. and The Klan was not actually particularly prominent for another five years. Right, so, not yet. So then it became, OK, well, well, how is it How is it using other films? How is it using other media that we're not aware of and we're not yet, um, we haven't researched? So it ranged from things like The Klan protesting against a Charlie Chaplin film because chaplin was um ridiculing as they said the protestant ministry they saw Mm -hmm. him as um so they 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 campaigned against films that it thought were um uh criticizing its values and its morals Mm -hmm. so they campaigned against um what they called the paramount sex plays you know films of uh (laughs) films that had morals that they didn't approve of so they they were campaigning against specific films as well. Um, And I found that, you know, part of the research was looking through clan newspapers and, you know, which is not, not what I would choose to do in my, (laughs) but it was, it was amazing to see how, how they were um, using the kind of language, how they were using these existing debates, these concerns that were there in society that, other, you know, women's groups and religious groups were saying these same things, but the Klan were now jumping in on those debates and also were turning them around so that rather than uh, – so that, for example, when they were campaigning against films, hmm. they were often criticizing what it saw as kind of Jewish and Catholic influences in, in America and in, in Hollywood particularly. So right. they used it to further their very particular um agendas.
1: And now I was gonna mention I'm glad you mentioned that about Catholicism because when you you mentioned, you know, the the Charlie Chaplin issue and, you know, denigrating um you know, maybe the Protestant faiths, you know, a lot of people who aren't as familiar about with the history of the Klan don't realize that their issues didn't just stop with uh uh you know black people or people of of darker skin. I mean they had issues with particularly during this time, immigrants um uh, of all types, right? Uh Catholics and other groups.
0: Absolutely, I think that the again, you know, without wish to draw parallels across time, I think that the, the targets change at different moments in history in a way. Right. So, um, in 1915, with the birth of a nation, obviously we had the African American uh, target in the film. In 1920, when there is a film, that the Klan. Um, put on and, and uh, present called The Face at Your Window, mm-hmm. the target is um, what they call a Bolshevik Jew at the time oh. of uh, the Red Scare in America. So they right. they have a different target at that moment. And then, as you say, in the in the 20s, more often they're concerned with Jewish and Catholic um, mm-hmm. influences in, in film and in Hollywood. So you're absolutely right. It's not to say that, certainly not to kind of downplay the... Um, the threats and the uh the ways they represented other other races and groups. But I think mm. the Jewish and Catholic um targets were very pronounced in the twenties and Absolutely. that really comes out in the in the ways in which the Klan um uh kind of articulate this in in their in their films and in in their newspapers and things.
1: And so you, you mentioned Birth of a Nation and you mentioned, you know, you know, that that film face, I think yeah. it's face at the window. Right. Yes. Face in the window. Mm-hmm. Um, what was some other, you know, I, I can think I know one that I'm particularly interested in, but I'll get to that. <laughs> and that's the Black Legion. Um, yeah. But, you know, you know, maybe can you share with some of our listeners some of the other films that are maybe prominent, prominent, probably the wrong word, but. You know, well-known, yeah. or you know, or any type of Hollywood-type films that they may be familiar with or not familiar with that you talk about in your book here that relate to the clan.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you said, there are there are films like there's a, a Mary Pickford film from 1919. Now, Mary Pickford, known as America's Sweethearts. right, um, right, uh, Canadian, but never mind. <laughs> um, but but she uh, she was in a film called Heart of the Hills where okay. she dresses up. She plays a night rider. She's effectively dressed in in um, in robes, and mm-hmm. and um, that was in nineteen nineteen. So in the book, I talk about the ways in which the image is used in other films, and the ways in which um, even though the clan itself may not be uh, it may not be described as the clan on screen, mm-hmm. we see this image used as a source of excitement or as a source of um, uh, as a kind of law enforcing. Uh, group mm-hmm. in a number of films. There's there's that with Mary Pickford. There are, um, as I said, stars like Chaplin. Even you know you even find things like Buster Keaton films where they use wow. the clan to exploit or advertise um, uh, the film. Um, there are films that the clan made themselves. So I talk in the book about a number of films made by right. local right. groups. Um, there's one called The Toll of Justice. Um, the Toll of Justice. Which uh, there is a um, a copy that the, it does still exist. I mean, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't seek it out, but but it's it's an example. It was very useful for me as a researcher because sure, sure. Um, not only in, in many cases I was writing about films that no longer exist, so you're having to to piece this together oh, from
1: right, right
0: from you know publicity materials or posters or uh, other documents that you might have. But the Toll of Justice, we do have a there is a version of the film around as well. And there were other films like there was one called The Traitor Within, um, mm. the mysterious eyes of the Ku Klux Klan, you get an idea just from the title oh right. of what they're um what they're doing. And then as you say, into the thirties, um in in the twenties, I think often the Klan is not as directly addressed. I mean, okay. maybe that's because, as I argue, partly because it is very prominent it's very topical right. and exhibitors are keen to exploit that exhibitors are keen mm. to uh, make a connection but producers with censorship and things like that often either avoid the topic or present it in a slightly different way so mm. for example there are some uh, films which do feature the clan but rather than the clan targeting um, racial or religious targets mm-hmm. instead the clan has to target uh, um, for example, the owner of a, a drinking establishment or something like this. Okay. And one of the effects of that is that actually you present a, a kind of a group that is in some ways um, uh, seen to be kind of law enforcing or, or moral, right. which is so the fact that you can't represent the targets creates that, that issue um, into the thirties. You mentioned black Legion there, right. which is a, it's, it's, it's a good example because that's a Humphrey Bogart film. Right. And one of his early ones. And, um, it doesn't actually, it's it's officially not the, the clan on screen. Right. The clan sued sued Warner brothers, um, because they said that they sued them for $112,000 because they said that, uh, the Warners had used their patented insignia in, in Mm. the film. Um, they lost the case, but it was a in some ways it's a um it's a typical move by the clan of that time in that it was gaining publicity, it was mm-hmm. exploiting the popular interest in film in Hollywood, and it also shows how conscious the clan was about its image. You know, how okay. actually the image was incredibly important and that image was created and popularized through film, really. So the ways in which the Fiery Cross, the costume, right, uh, right. which is how it made most of its money as well, you know, was, was through the membership and sales mm-hmm. of these images of this costume, how, how important that image was for, for the group. Um, and that's another way in which, in which uh, film is incredibly important in this mm-hmm. period.
1: I actually own a DVD copy of The Black Legion.
0: Do you? Okay.
1: Yeah, I, you know, in doing some research um, on uh, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, for history classes, I came across this, you know, because yeah. it was, you know, Humphrey Bogart, you know, and, yeah, and really. you know, I'm familiar with the story that you said, you know, about them not really naming the, the Ku Klux Klan in the movie, but it was pretty obvious, um, you know, who yeah. um, they were talking about. And so I always found that film, uh, you know, quite fascinating for that reason. And you know, and I'm familiar, of course, with the birth of the na- of a nation. I think you know many people are familiar with that. They may not be as familiar with Black Legion, um, but they probably can look it up now that we've talked about it <laughs> a little bit. because
0: Absolutely. and I think yeah. it's an interesting film also because it's a it's a moment when the Klan has, in many ways, you know, it's it's fallen from influence and uh, its membership is a tiny proportion of what it was in the twenties. Right. So. You have a number of films in the late 30s that now start to critique the Klan and show the Klan as a you know, corrupt, violent force, right. as, as un-American, whereas uh, in the 20s, that debate and discussion is still going on um, through these films. So there's a, a sense in which those films also allow us to see the kind of end of this period and the ways in which... The clan fade, gone with the winds. Another one, of course, where right. uh, you know the clan are in the book, but they're not in the film, and well, they're not directly mentioned in the film. And clan newspapers complained about this and, and presented this as a um, as a Jewish distortion of history. That's how they they phrase this in mm. the in the papers. But they also tried to. They reportedly um, offered to. Uh, parade at the premiere of the film. So, which unsurprisingly was turned down. but there was this, (laughs) again, we've got this idea of the ways in which the group was trying to use film, was trying to exploit the media and kind of inherent interest in the subject, the image, the performance, those kinds of things um, across this time.
1: And I'm here with Dr. Tom Rice of the University of St. Andrews, in the UK, he's a lecturer in film studies, and we're talking about his book. This is a book published by Indiana University Press. I definitely recommend it. It's called White Robes, Silver Screens: Movies and the Making of the Ku Klux Klan. So, if you're a person, if you're interested in film history, film studies, or if you're interested in like the Jim Crow era, segre you know segregation uh, and how those uh, different subject areas kind of cross <laughs> each other. This is a this is a good book. Um, for you. And um I know we're getting a little short of time, but I definitely wanted you to talk about a, you know of maybe a few more films that people may be familiar with uh, from the book.
0: Sure. So um Or not well, familiar with. No, <laughs> no exactly or not yeah we're not familiar with. <laughs> well there are as I said, there are films that the Klan um protested against as well. So There were films with titles like Paramount films, and titles like Manhandle, The Enemy Sex, Changing Husbands. Oh, my goodness. Uh, A film called The Female, which promised to show its star more nearly nude than she's yet appeared on screen. And obviously, these are the kinds of films that uh, the Klan um, condemned and criticized. And in doing that, it was presenting itself as a kind of moral guardian. So what we see here is the ways in which the Klan is trying to position itself within uh not just within local groups mm-hmm. so so but also as a kind of national voice you know mm-hmm. as as a, as a um as an influence on national policy mm-hmm. so you see it aligning with lots of other groups whether it's um you know as i said women's groups or religious groups or uh particular protestant groups or the american legion or whatever it may be doesn't mean those other groups were in any way trying to right right uh, I should point out, but they were recognizing the, the potential here. Um, and similarly, you know, you have I talk a lot, not just about the films that they they showed or films mm-hmm. that we may know, but also about things like um how these films were advertised and how they were they were um exhibited. So you have theatres, I said, that were were owned by the clan, but you also have um mm-hmm. The clan recognized that the film could do a job if people went to see the film. Mm-hmm. But equally, the advertisements for the films, which might be put in local papers, they might be on, you know, bus stations or whatever it would be. These were ways in which they could promote their values. Mm-hmm. So the posters might would often say, you know, the film that every 100 percent American should see or ah, right. red blooded American. And they would have at the bottom, they might have catch lines like um, do away with divorce, protect clean womenhood, you know, Mm -hmm. protect Americanism. And in that way, what we see is the ways in which the Klan was using film to uh, not just the film itself, but rather all the publicity around it Mm -hmm. to project itself within the local community. And you see in some of these communities just how embedded it becomes, you know, how... um, how it manages to uh, become a kind of legitimate organisation almost in in mm. some of these communities, and it's 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 you know hard now with to kind of imagine how this happens, but at mm-hmm. the same time we can see how yes we uh, can <laughs> how you know these ideas become kind of normalised. You know they become um, they they become kind of embedded in in communities here, and I think it's. You know, I, I found I found part of the challenge, of course, was was actually finding these examples. So finding the the cinemas that are owned by clansmen or whatever it may be, because mm. that's not necessarily something you would think would be widely advertised. Right, but, right. But you see it in the language. So there was a a, a theatre which advertised itself as cool, cozy, and clean with the 3Ks. <laughs> they would they would use. Uh, particular language each week and would say you know we only show the most moral american productions Mm -hmm. and these kinds of things so there are there were ways in which they were clearly talking to particular groups Mm -hmm. uh, in this time as well so there were there were not just the films that interested me but also i guess the the exhibition the ways Mm -hmm. these were shown things like the censorship of films so i was interested in in that in what what wasn't shown on screen as well so um you Know when I was thinking about how Hollywood responded to the Klan in mm. the 20s, you know, what was if, if, how, how does that respond and how can it respond? Mm. Um, so I was interested in things like things like censorship, things like, uh, you know, a figure like Oscar Michaud who people know about
1: mm-hmm. a bit You'll already, African American filmmaker,
0: right? Thinking about how, um, how he fits into these debates as well you know how he, he attempted to confront the Klan on film to to challenge some of the images that were were dominant at the time so thinking about this these kind of debates that are that are feeding in there as well okay
1: and we're here with dr tom rice of the university of saint andrews in the uk he's a lecturer in film studies and we're talking about his book from indiana university press white robes silver screens movies And the making of the Ku Klux Klan, white robes, silver screens, movies and the making of the Ku Klux Klan. And so, Tom, I I guess, you know, we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but I guess I have to ask the obvious question. Um, (laughs) Before they had social media, you you know, you had films and you had these advertisements and that was how white nationalists and white supremacist types, uh, you know, uh, got their message out there and such. And now in 2016, at least in the United States, you're having a a bit of a a rise or, you know, a return of some of these groups to prominence. Now they're kind of known as the alt-right here. Yeah. Um, You know, would you be able to make you think a a direct comparison between what the Ku Klux Klan did with films and movies and and some of these social media websites and and such that the alt-right movement is using in today's world?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think there is, as I said, I think there is a a clear link there um, or at least a parallel that we can draw. I mean, I, th- I think one of the important points is that the moment that I was looking at, this mm-hmm. moment in history between kind of, as I said, there's this Red Scare in 1919 and then there's the big um, the Immigration Act in 1924. And this is a moment where there's this real kind of heightened um patriotic fervor, you know, heightened conservatism. Right. Um and I think there's a parallel between that moment mm-hmm. and the moment today. Mm. In particular to say the use of media, absolutely, I think we see it in the language. So the discourses around something like Americanism, as I've discussed mm-hmm. already. Um, the ways in which the Klan projected itself as a kind of underdog. You know, here you've got a clearly, you know, the the um, a group of uh, white males, sure. and, and women actually, but projecting itself as um, a kind of using the language of minority groups and things like that mm-hmm. as well. Present itself as a kind of threatened force here in America in in the, in the teens and twenties. Um, but I think what you see most of all is the way it managed to to normalize its its views and its ideas and mm-hmm. to Present them as uh, to manage to manoeuvre into the mainstream effectively. That's what we see. We see this this group manoeuvre into the man- mainstream to become a um, a kind of legitimate force within mm-hmm. the country. You know, it's it's a prominent social and political force in the twenties. As mm-hmm. I said, we're looking at five million members. We're talking about senior political figures. We're talking about um, future presidents. <laughs> future presidents. And I think there's a real danger of dismissing that moment and, and of thinking of of dismissing what we think the Klan is, because actually there is a parallel there in how how it uses media with, with then and now. And I think that's a useful parallel to mm. to, to kind of draw out and to recognise. You know, if we can't learn lessons from history, then you know, um, what's the point of history? You know, we have to. Right. We have to, to, to repeat we're, it. They're doomed to repeat it. Exactly. So. I think there are lessons we can we can put out there. I mean, absolutely. Yeah.
1: And so, yeah, we're here. White Rose, Silver Screens. We're here with Dr. Tom Rice of the University of St. Andrews in the UK and his book, White Rose, Silver Screens, Movies and the Making of the Ku Klux Klan. It's published by Indiana University Press. And Dr. Rice, thank you so much for taking time with us. Uh, to talk about your book, you know, I feel like I could talk with you all evening. But I know it's uh, it's late in the evening for you, and you want you got to get home and get to your your family and friends and and relax after a long day at work, right?
0: Yeah, that's true. Exactly. I know I better get back eventually. I've got two kids who are waiting for me at home, so uh, can't <laughs> stay forever. I know it's tempting as it would be. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So yeah, definitely uh, tell them uh, their their new friend Jane said hello from Houston, Texas. <laughs>
0: They will be very impressed with that. They will yeah. like that. And, yeah. and apologize
1: for me in advance for keeping Dad from uh, getting home to them. <laughs>
0: That's good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We, I, I, will, I will let them know it's all your fault. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
1: And before we go, you know, I just wanted to give you a chance to, Tom, if you wanted to talk about any current research you're doing or classes you're teaching or any future books or, you know, anything that you want to talk about that you want to share with the audience because, you know, i like them to know about other things our, our authors are working on as well. Or have worked on.
0: Great, thank you. Um, well, actually I'm working on a another book at the moment, which okay. is um, uh, in the kind of writing stages, and that's on um, I'm looking at the British Empire now, so I am I am moving uh, right. I'm, I'm moving out of the states to uh, looking at the British Empire, looking at the ways in which uh, the British government used film during the the kind of 30s, 40s, 50s, oh, okay. so at the end of the British Empire. The ways in which uh, the government used film to try and, uh, in some ways, kind of create these British citizens all around the world. So ah, looking okay. at how it used film in in Africa, in the Caribbean, in Malaysia, mm-hmm. and other parts of the British Empire. So in some ways, there are quite close parallels with what I was doing in 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 the white Robe silver screens, in that mm-hmm. interest is in the kind of ways in which film is is used by governments or political mm-hmm. groups to kind sure, of further sure. their their aims and their goals um and in some ways to to kind of promote a model of citizenship and to bring a group together okay. um so that's the project i'm working on at the minute it is uh I'm yeah i'm in the writing <laughs> process so uh my head is somewhere there and and here as well so uh, yeah, absolutely it, uh yeah but i'm hoping that will be i will finish that you know by the end of next year and uh and then who knows exactly so i, I but i, I work, um i i did work for a few years after i um in between on this project i worked uh on a project on colonial film at the british film institute in, oh, okay. BFI. in yeah bfi absolutely in in the uk and for that we produced a website where we made lots of these films available around the world. Wow. I know we get, um, I, you know, I've had lots of comments, nice comments from people in the States who have been able to see these films and, and read my work through that in a way that obviously, uh, you know, now we're able to, to present this material in, mm. in more interesting ways. So it's great that those films are, mm. um, more widely available, and and uh, people are able to to view them and to read the scholarship alongside alongside the films. I know they're used in in teaching things like that. So yeah, that sounds that's awesome. a, that was a really fun project to work on because, as you mentioned earlier, I think one of the um, one of the nice things with any bits of work we do is mm. being able to get to a wider audience and not just see it as you know a piece of scholarship or something right. that is exclusively for you know, people in universities or whatever, I absolutely think these are, these are histories and stories that are of interest and I hope of relevance to, you know, much wider uh, group and that people can draw out, um, you know, lessons and interests from 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 the histories. So that was the end. Yeah, and that, and that sounds
1: great. And um, you definitely did that with White Rose Silver Screens. It, you know, it certainly, you know, piqued my interest and attracted my attention. And I think it will do that for others here in the United States as well. So, you know, definitely thank you for that, Tom Rice, you know, for your research. And I think it's going to be invaluable for people, um, you know, film study scholars, film historians as such in future years for these things that you did, you know, looking into some of these early works that involved the Ku Klux Klan. So definitely I wanted to personally thank you
0: for doing that work and that research. Thank you. That's that's very kind. And as you say, I think. Um, you always hope with these things that it will lead other people to uh, right. you know to do their own work and to, to you know, challenge it and to uh, come up with new research as well. So I, I hope that it leads to, you know, more discussion mm-hmm. and, and debate and brings brings the issue forward again. So, yeah.
1: Thank you. So do you think you'll ever maybe I guess sequel is the wrong thing to say for <laughs> <laughs> for a book, but maybe look at the Ku Klux Klan in films? In you know, in more recent years, or more recent times, because they've it's de- they've definitely been portrayed in the in the last five or ten years with some of these slavery era films.
0: Absolutely, I mean, there was, you're absolutely right. There are there have been quite a few in the in the last few years, um, even at the beginning of the century, with things like you know, Her Brother Thou and right. um, I think Bad Boys Two had a sequel. You know, they're quite big films. Had, had these saddles. They <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. These kind of moments in as well. So um, I, I suppose. I might I mean I, I probably wouldn't the prospect of a sequel doesn't uh you know <laughs> doesn't fill me. I don't 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 plan on making this a trilogy. But um uh I think in some ways the maybe the aspect that interests me most is uh this kind of use of media. So maybe thinking thinking beyond just film and thinking as as you mentioned in, right. uh, you know, very astutely in your in your question earlier about um the ways in which social media works today and things like this as well. And so I I, there are interesting areas that I would, I would, you know, I might work in on there. Um, At the same time, it is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay with having a break from researching (laughs) the class for a bit. Yeah,
1: yeah. You had to, you had to sacrifice yourself a little bit to help others. I'm sure it wasn't your favorite topic to. uh,
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, it was always intriguing. That's the thing. I mean, you know, it's, I think it's a subject that people have an awareness of already, which was what? kind of excited me about it was that you mentioned the topic and people have ideas already. They, you know, they, they, um, they know bits about it. Mm -hmm. So that is great as a researcher because you, you then have the challenge of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, of working with a topic that people have Mm -hmm. very strong feelings about already. already And and their attention. Exactly. So that, that was, um, so yeah, that that was a, a, that's a, a nice starting point for a topic, I think.
1: Absolutely, and I would love to get you back on the New Books Network when you complete your next book. Um, so you know we can talk about that in the, in the future. My audience Great. definitely, yeah, we love we love to uh, hear about that one as well. And you know, audience, we're gonna let Dr. Rice go get to his kids. I don't <laughs> want I don't want to hold him any longer. So thank you so much, Dr. Rice, for your, your time. And I'm here with Tom Rice. White Robed Silver Screens Movies and the Making of the Ku Klux Klan This book is published by Indiana University Press And definitely if you're interested in film history About the Ku Klux Klan race relations In the 20th century Definitely check this book out And so on that note Tom If you can say goodbye to the audience for me And we'll be done for today
0: Great okay well thanks James Thanks anyone for listening And uh, really lovely to speak to you today
1: Absolutely and on that note I'll see you next time on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel. Take care. Okay, we're back and this is James Stansel, the host of the African-American Studies channel on the New Books Network. And I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Tom Rice at the University of St. Andrews in the United Kingdom, the UK. His book, White Robes, Silver Screens: Movies and the Making of a Ku Klux Klan great film scholar. He did great research on this book. I hope you enjoyed that interview, and I hope you'll check out his book. You know, there's not many books about the Ku Klux Klan and their film history, and he did a really good job in his research. So on that note, take care, and I'll see you next time on the African American Studies Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stansel. Take care.